The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1. We're looking at verses 26 through 38. Give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us, sustaining it even that we might have it today read in our own language. We can understand it, but we ask that you now, according to your promise, And by the work of your Holy Spirit, would you give us spiritual understanding? Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us. Correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. Oh God, make us more like Jesus. Pray for your people that they would be encouraged. And I pray that you would help me. Lord, that you would protect me from error, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an age-old question, a question asked by children, theologians, and pretty much everybody alike. Here's the question. Can God build a rock so big that he cannot move it? You've heard that before, right? 
maybe you've even asked it, can God build a rock so big that he cannot move it? This question presents what is called a conundrum. It's a conundrum for those who believe that God is omnipotent or all-powerful, is what that means. Those like me who believe that God is able to do all things. The reason it presents a so-called conundrum is because if you answer yes, if you say God can build a rock so big that he cannot move it, then there is something not possible for God to do. Therefore, he can't be all-powerful. But if you answer no, he cannot build a rock so big that he cannot move it, then again, there is something not possible for him to do. Therefore, he is not all-powerful. Do you see the supposed conundrum? Well, this question, however, is not impossible to answer. There actually is an answer for it. In fact, the answer is quite simple. Can God build a rock so big that he cannot move it? Of course not. To be omnipotent or all-powerful does not mean that God can do anything. Anything possible, right? God cannot cease to exist, can he? Can God cease to exist? Can God lie? Can God lie? Can God stop being God? Can he just quit, resign one day? Join the great resignation. Stop being God. No, as long as God is God, whatever God makes, whatever God creates, God has absolute power and control over it. God can do anything that he purposes to do, anything that is consistent with his character. So if he were to build a rock that he could not move, it would not be consistent with who he is as God. So it's not a matter of can God do that. When somebody asks that question, can God do that? It's a matter of God would not do that. It's against who God is. It's against God's character. God only acts in accordance with his nature, in accordance with his character, in accordance with his word. God does what is right all the time. God does what is right. We're actually met with this theological truth in our text today. In fact, it is exactly what the angel Gabriel emphasizes to Mary in verse 37. Look, he says to her, nothing will be impossible with God. You see, God, because he is God, has absolute power over everything that he has created, including this reference here in the text to Elizabeth's barren womb in her older age, but also Mary's empty virgin womb, the very womb that will unexpectedly carry God's one and only son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, until he's born in Bethlehem. God is sovereign, even over the womb. This morning, as we continue our Advent series, I want us to consider not only what the news of the virgin birth meant to Mary herself, but what it means for each and every one of us. As we celebrate, right, we celebrate the first appearing of our Lord Jesus, and hopefully in doing so, we celebrate, greatly anticipate his second advent his second future coming. So to help us understand this passage, to guide us, and if you're taking notes, I'm going to go ahead and give you the outline up front. I'm going to follow the dialogue that is presented 
And so there's four points. They're simple. First, Gabriel's greeting. Gabriel's greeting. Second is Gabriel's announcement. His announcement. Third, Mary's question. Mary's question. And fourth, Mary's response. Mary's response. So we'll look first at Gabriel's greeting, which we find, and you can look there, in verses 26 through 28. There we are told that Gabriel was dispatched from God to a city of Galilee, in the region of Galilee, named Nazareth. And he goes specifically to a virgin girl named Mary. We go on to see that this girl is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, who was of the house of David, something we established even last week. When you read this, though, if you read it at face value, it is doubtful whether Gabriel could have found a more unlikely person to greet anywhere in Israel. You see, Mary was among the lowly of Israel. Mary was very young. We need to get this in our heads as we think about the Christmas story. Mary was very young. History tells us that the common age of betrothal in this time for a girl was 12 to 13 years old. 12 to 13 years old. She was young, and betrothal was a contract. It was a formal, legal contract, a pledge obligating a man and a woman to be married after a time. And this time was usually a year, okay? So they were to be married within a year. During this time of betrothal, the woman would even be called wife, even though they will not have lived together or consummated the marriage yet. They would be considered almost as if they were married. Any violation of this betrothal, this engagement, as we might call it now, this engagement process was serious. Any violation was serious, even could be considered adultery if this vow was broken. So here's Mary, a very young girl. By accounts of this town of Nazareth, she was a poor, uneducated peasant living in a small country town, betrothed to this man named Joseph, likely considered by the world, the rest of the world at least, to be a reflection of what, you remember what John says in his gospel account about people say of Nazareth, speaking of Jesus, do you remember? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? Pastor and commentator Ken Hughes, I think, summarizes Mary well. He says that she is a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Mary was certainly among the lowly, but Gabriel's arrival... This special messenger sent from God himself. And his greeting reminds us that God's grace is for the lowly. God's grace is for the lowly, for people just like Mary. For Mary receives the greatest honor that any woman could be given at this moment. He says to her, listen what he says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. You know, Mary's in for a big surprise. She's being chosen to be the mother of Jesus. Her lowly estate, worldly speaking, was part of God's exact plan. 
You see, by choosing her, God was beginning to show right at the very beginning the, the humiliation, what we call the humiliation of Jesus, not being ashamed, but the humiliation, his being humbled. God would humble himself. The son of God would humble himself to endure for the salvation of his people. Right away, we're seeing a picture of that. Jesus, for him to come and to rescue us from our sins and to lift us up to glory, he first had to humble himself, to leave the glories of heaven and to enter into the misery of our lost and fallen condition. So Gabriel's greeting highlights this grace, this amazing grace that God is showing to Mary and to all of us. His greeting to her is actually a benediction. It's a pronouncement of blessing. The ESV translation, if you're looking at it, and I read from it, handles it well. It calls Mary, oh, favored one. It's very particular. You might know that other translations here will say, Mary, full of grace. Mary, full of grace. In fact, this is where Roman Catholics get the language for their Hail Mary prayers. Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace, and so on. But this phrase, full of grace, if we were to use that, it's actually a mistranslation. And it's a mistranslation based on the Latin. You may or may not know that the early church father, Jerome, translated the Bible from Greek to Latin. It's called the Vulgate, or the Vulgate, the Vulgate. He translated it in there. He put full of grace, right? He put full of grace. But it's a mistranslation, and it's important we recognize it because the words full of grace implies something. It implies something. It implies that Mary is a repository of grace, right? That she has extra grace to give, grace to give to others. And so all we have to do is cry out to her and ask her to give us this grace which that is the basis of this sad malpractice of praying to anyone but the Lord, praying to Mary. The correct translation of the original language, if you didn't know, the New Testament originally written in Koine Greek, yields favored one, or because it's passive, what we might literally say is that the one to whom grace has been given. There's your English lesson for today the one to whom grace has been given. You see, this correct translation and why I make sure to point it out to you this morning is I want you to get it into your hearts and into your heads that Mary is receiving grace from God. God is visiting her and giving her grace. God is showing her unmerited favor. It's not based on anything she has done. He's chosen her just as he chooses us for his great salvation. He's chosen her, a lowly sinner. And that's comforting because when we might feel small and insignificant, when we might feel overlooked by the world, we might feel a little bit like Mary may have felt even in her own condition. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt You can know that God is most certainly for us, that his grace is indeed for the lowly. It's for all of his people, all who would come to him by faith. So Mary's response to Gabriel's greeting, 
you see it there in verse 29. It's not unexpected, right? Look what it says. She's greatly troubled. I like those understatements. I mean, could you imagine? You're there doing your thing and an angel shows up and says this to you. I mean, wouldn't you be troubled as well? Wouldn't we, like her, struggle to discern, like the text says, what this greeting means? Well, she doesn't have to ponder long, does she? She doesn't have to ponder long for what comes next. Our second point, Gabriel's announcement, tells Mary exactly what's about to happen. You see his announcement there in verses 30 through 33. Notice that it begins with reassurance. Right? Gabriel reassures her, he comforts her. He's come to Mary with good news. He wants Mary to rest in this promise that God is bringing to her, to know that God is visiting her by his grace to do something wonderful. He's actually visiting her to fulfill what he had promised so long ago through the prophet Isaiah. God's fulfilling his promise. You can see it in Isaiah 7, 14, you can turn there if you want with me. I'll read it for you. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Gabriel tells Mary that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son. In accordance with this passage, she's to call this son by the name Jesus. She's told you call his name Jesus. And you know what that means? Jesus literally means God saves or the Lord is salvation. God is salvation. Gabriel then goes on to say that Jesus shall be great. And that he will be called the son of the most high. And God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? That's a lot that he just gives to her right there. I mean, think about all that is packed into that statement. There's three things in particular I want you to see. First, in the Old Testament, if you're to go there and study, wherever the word great is used without qualification, when it's just something is great, it almost always refers to God himself. God is great. His wisdom is great. His power is great. His love is great. His mercy is great. His justice is great. Second, most high is a title for God. It's a favorite expression of David when referring to God, particularly in the Psalms. Just search, right? Search most high and see how many times it comes up in the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of David. And now this baby is being referred to as the son of the most high. As Gabriel will say later, he's the son of God. This is a statement right away, points to him being the second person of the Trinity, the divine son of God. And third and lastly, Gabriel reveals that this baby will rule. This baby is going to be a king. He's going to rule in majesty. He's going to sit on the ancient throne of David. That means something. If you hear that with the ears of faith, this is the Messiah. This baby's the Messiah. He's the promised one. The one promised he would always sit on the throne of David and rule and reign forever. So you see, in just that statement, 
There's a lot of theology and a lot of redemptive history packed right into it. This whole account right here, this this announcement reminds me of those times when a kid or maybe your kid comes to you, they make some statement and then they move right on to a lengthy explanation of that statement. But you kind of miss everything that they say in their explanation because you're still stuck on that first statement, right? I mean, just think about this. Your child comes to you. Hey, dad, I wrecked the car. And the reason I wrecked the car is because I was going this, I was doing here and somebody pulled out in front of me and then I couldn't move and you're going, what? (laughs) Can we just back up a second? You wrecked the car? Almost everything they say after that, you just can't take in, can you? All you can think is you wrecked the car. I do think that Mary is like this in verse 34. Gabriel's announcement was full of wonderful theological and redemptive historical truth. I mean, it's truth that sinks into Mary's heart because it flows into the Magnificat later. She sings of it and brings up these things in her song, right? So it does make its way in there. But Mary right now in this text appears stuck on the words at the beginning of the announcement. I mean, wouldn't any of us be? Wouldn't any of us be stuck? Look at verse 34, and we'll see our third point, Mary's question. How will this be? (laughs) Hold up, wait a minute. (laughs) Uh, What? And she says, because I am a virgin, she's not been with a man. I love the childlike faith of Mary here. I mean, she is a child. She's 12 to 13, you know, she's young, but I love the childlike faith. She clearly believes this is going to happen. I think she accepts it as truth right away. How do I know? She's not like Zechariah before. She doesn't ask the the what question. She doesn't ask the why question. What does she ask? How? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) but how? How is this going to happen? I mean, Mary likely knew the promise of Isaiah 7.14. She likely knew that. She likely knew that the promised Messiah was indeed going to come one day. She obviously believed that God would do what he had always promised to do for his people. But all the knowledge in the world is not enough to explain the unexpected pregnancy that's being announced to her right now. So to answer the popular song, Mary, did you know? Yeah, Mary knew. So there you go, I answered it for you. But she's not concerned with the what. She's not concerned with the why. She wants to know the how. How, God, how? Mary understands Gabriel to be saying that this child would be conceived before she was formally married in full. How? Mary's a faithful person. The fact that she's called again and again the Virgin Mary shows that she's saving herself for marriage. She's preserving her purity as a prize, the way people who follow after the Lord are called to do. She was betrothed to Joseph, not married in full yet, but she was betrothed to him. She's not living together. Him. She's not having relations with him. So, how in the world could she conceive a child in her womb? Look at Gabriel's answer again in verses 35 through 37. I'll read it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High 
will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel makes it clear that this conception will be a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. This will be a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. You might think back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? As you keep going, we learn about God's Spirit. God's Spirit is hovering, overshadowing the waters, hovering over the deep. It's the same word. That's being conveyed here, just as the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 during that powerful work of creation. So he too, notice the Trinitarian nature of this passage. We've seen God the Father sending Gabriel. We've seen the announcement of the Son. And now we see the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, is going to overshadow Mary, hover over Mary, and powerfully bring about the conception of of Jesus in her womb. For nothing will be impossible with God. He's doing what he's promised to do, to send the blessed seed, to send the one son of David, to save his people from their sins. Divinity is taking on humanity. And this will be the clear and unmistakable work of God himself. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. A miracle that over and over gets what? Laughed at, mocked, scorned, ignored. Yet faithful churches confess it over and over and over again. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, Apollinarian Creed, our own confession of faith and other confessions. It's a miracle. It's the miraculous redemptive work that we have to cling to. We have to cling to it with all of our might, with all of our faith. To deny the virgin birth is to deny the very Christian faith itself. There was a man Many of you might be familiar with him. His name was J. Gresham Machen. And he fought a long and hard battle on this very thing, as well as all other things that are called miracles. Scorned by his own Presbyterian denomination for believing in miracles like the incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus. He even deposed as a minister because he held to biblical truth. Many of you may know his name because he went on to found Westminster Theological Seminary and also one of the founders of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Machen fought a fight against rampant modernism in his day, in the late 20th, early, excuse me, late 19th, early 20th century. He fought this battle, wrote some great books. For instance, Christianity and Liberalism. It's a great book to look at that upholds divine truth. I want to read a quote to you from that book from Machen with reference to things like miracles. Of those who would say that Jesus was just a man, just a good guy, good teacher, someone to follow. This is what he said. He goes, if Jesus was merely a man, 
like the rest of men, then an ideal is all that we have in him. Far more is needed by a sinful world. It is small comfort to be told that there was goodness in the world when what we need is goodness triumphant over sin. But goodness triumphant over sin involves an entrance of the creative power of God, and that creative power of God is manifested by the miracles. Miracles like the incarnation, the virgin birth of Jesus. He says, without the miracles, the New Testament might be easier to believe, but the thing that would be believed would be entirely different from that which presents itself to us in the scriptures. Without the miracles, we should have a teacher. With the miracles, we have a savior. With the miracles, we have a savior. This brings us now to our fourth and final point this morning, Mary's response. You see it there in verse 38. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Mary, by God's grace, clearly has this kind of assurance. I want you to notice she raises no objections. She does not hold out for an easier calling, like so many before her, as you read through the Bible. She does not ask God for any further explanation. She didn't throw a fleece or anything like that, right? She just says yes. Once she hears what God is doing, it's enough for her. Let it be. Let it be. According to your word, Mary, trust God even when it seems impossible. God is the God of the impossible. He works according to his nature, his character, and his purpose. And that's what he's doing right here. And she says, let it be. Look what she calls herself. She calls herself the servant, not the queen. Some churches might call her today. She calls herself the slave, the bond servant. That's what that literally means. She's the servant of God. Mary's offering to God humble, trusting, and submissive obedience. She's being given a great honor, but let us not forget that what she's doing here is incredibly brave. It takes the spirit to do what she's doing. Think about what happens and could happen to her if she embraces the truth being revealed to her. Think about what it means for Mary to fully accept and fulfill what would happen to her, right? Because it means that Mary is willing to give up almost everything that she knows and loves. She has to be willing to give up her future husband, Joseph. A sense of security for her and her family. For how in the world, how in the world would Joseph continue to consent to take her as his wife when he finds out that she is pregnant with a child that wasn't his own? We know what Matthew tells us, right? Gabriel gets there too, doesn't he? Hey, buddy. Right? He gets grace too. I just want you to think with me for a moment. That was at risk. She had to be willing to give up her reputation. She'd be willing to give up her reputation. One can only imagine what would be said about her in Nazareth. Could you imagine how 
juicy the gossip would be about this young girl, this unexpected pregnancy, the shame that would accompany that perhaps. Let us remember that Mary also had to be willing to give up her very life. That's very possible here. According to the law in Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24, it's very possible that she could have been stoned to death. If they didn't believe her account of a miraculous intervention of God, then she would have violated that law, and she could have been put to death. Not to mention everything else she was facing. We'll talk next week about going to Bethlehem and having the baby, the flight to Egypt, perhaps. Think about growing up and seeing him go off into his ministry and then even die there on the cross. Think about all that faced her, all the trials. But even so, she makes the good confession. In fact, I agree with several commentators who say this might actually be the first ever Christian confession. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary believed with all her heart what Gabriel had had said. Nothing's impossible with God. So let me ask you this. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Do you truly believe that with God all things are possible within his nature and character and purpose? Do you really believe that? Do you truly believe that what God has promised to do, he will most certainly bring it to fulfillment? That as the word tells us, that all of the promises of God find their yes, their amen in Jesus Christ. If you say yes to that, I want you to think for a moment. Think about all of God's promises. Maybe we could take a few hours, maybe, get out those pencils and the paper, and go through the scriptures and find those promises from God. Think about some of them. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will not leave you or forsake you. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will raise them up on the last day. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today you will be with me in paradise. Think about all the promises of God. And here's a question. We have a faith like Jesus, a faith seen in the childlike faith of Mary, not only to ask how, because it's okay to ask how. It's okay to ask what or why sometimes too, right? It's part of being human. But beyond the questioning, let it be to me according to your word. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But yet, not my will, but your will be done. 
Mary is a picture of the triumphant faith of Jesus. And so we hold out Jesus as our only hope. Jesus is our only hope. Mary said these words in the face of an unexpected, miraculous pregnancy. And so we're called this morning to say the same words in the face of our own unexpected circumstances, whatever they are, because they happen all the time. So I want to encourage you that the one whom we celebrate at Christmas, the one who is indeed the Son of the Most High, Jesus, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, the one who came to save his people from their sins, this Jesus on whom we have believed and in whom we have received everlasting life, this Jesus is great and he will greatly do his work both in you and in me and us and for us by his spirit. And he will indeed transform us more and more into his image, no matter what we face. And it's going to be for our good and his glory. So whatever comes your way, whatever happens unexpectedly, as it certainly will, may we always say, let it be to me, according to your word, thy will be done. Amen. And amen. Would you grab your bulletin?